Thank you for joining us today on Geezers of Gear, episode number 162. Today's podcast is brought to you by ACT Entertainment. ACT is North America's leading distributor and manufacturer of entertainment technology products with award-winning brands servicing the entire entertainment industry. ACT understands that sometimes you need an entertainment-focused IT infrastructure that can reach anywhere on the globe, and you need it to go with you everywhere and be deployed in seconds. The bridge from Just Industries makes all of that possible with a simplicity and reliability that borderlines on magic. Bring your entire team and all your gear with you everywhere you go with Just the Bridge. Brought to you by ACT Entertainment. Hello there, and thanks for joining me again on Geezers of Gear. Today's episode is 162, and uh, I know I usually do this big monologue thing here and talk about things that probably two-thirds of the world doesn't agree with me on, and uh, yeah, so I mean, obviously we're still here. It's still weird times. It's January, near the end of January 2022, which is all just sort of a uh, continuation of 2020, I guess. 21 was supposed to be the great year. It kind of was wacky as hell. 2022 is proving to start out a little odd, um, but certainly getting better. We're seeing signs of life. You know, the UK is coming around. Uh, I think a lot of markets are going to start to do the same thing. So we'll see how that goes. Although at the same time, I'm hearing that um, tours and even sporting events are requiring that you are not only double vaxxed, but that you also have the booster. So I don't know when that ends or how that changes or what that means to the world, but uh, I think people are going to be on both sides of that. Some are going to think that it's ludicrous and crazy and shouldn't happen, and others are going to think that we should never go out and do a show unless everyone is quadruple vaxxed. So um, I'm not going to pick a side on on this particular podcast, um, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm on the side of let's get back to work and let's make things happen and let's get the industry recovered and let's actually be able to tour, do a tour that doesn't just go, you know, Florida, Texas, uh, Tennessee, Florida, Texas, Tennessee. Let's actually tour not only the entire country, but also the globe again. Let's have global tours, world tours. Uh, and that's when we've fully recovered. And that's when the industry is going to go just batshit crazy again. So I'm looking forward to it. I think it's coming soon, hopefully this year and uh, hopefully this quarter. And um, But I'm holding, uh, I'm a little bit reserved on that one. I don't think that... Uh, it's going to move quite that quickly. There's still way too many politics and feelings involved. But anyways, um, let's hope uh, everyone stays healthy and happy. There have been far too many people leaving us uh, already. Well, I guess not this year, but uh, certainly at the end of last year. And I do have a couple of friends who uh, who have passed away, unfortunately, recently. So um, I know many of you listening know Tim Brennan and were probably involved in uh, his life and 
and uh, probably also at his funeral as well. So that was very sad. It was a tough time for me personally. I've been friends with the guy for 30 years. So yeah. Um, anyways, uh, onward and upward, and hopefully we're all staying healthy and, and uh, we'll make it through this year and through this pandemic and we'll come out the other end, uh, you know, alive and well. So with that, I would like to mention that today's guest is none other than Mr. Bob Gordon, who many will know uh, as the founder of Act, Act Lighting, which is now Act Entertainment and also our sponsor for today's episode. And uh, he has a huge history behind that. So I think a lot of people don't know Bob's history in touring and Bob's history in lighting and theater and all kinds of things. So uh, great friend and really good dude. And I'm looking forward to uh, sharing some stories from him with you. So here we go. Here's Bob. Mr. Bob Gordon, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm great, thanks. You? You're you're left coast, so it's morning. So it, for me, it's uh, 12.05 here in the p.m. So nine o'clock in the morning for Bob. He's had a couple of espressos. He's he's ready to rock. So you know, in in putting this, first of all, thank you, Bob, for uh, for taking some time to do this. You've been promising me for probably two years that you would do it, and eventually, uh, at, at least two years. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's all of our conversations. Uh, you know, when we unfortunately lost Timmy recently, and I think that got you thinking nostalgic again. And you know, so uh, I'm glad you decided to do it because I can't wait to to uh, talk to you about some of the things that you've definitely done in your life and some of the stories, you know, you're one of these guys, which is kind of scary, really, you you don't seem to forget much when it comes to things that have happened stories. Yeah, and they say pot ruins your memory, right? Yeah, exactly. It seems to have uh, preserved yours. It's, uh, it's pickled, your memory is pickled now. So, um, so yeah, you know, in researching this a little bit and, and just digging around and finding what I could find and just some of the stories that you've told me in the past, you know, it's remarkable to me how much you've actually done that so many people don't know about. Like I know, I know some people think you kind of popped into the world around the time that you were at Wybron. Some people thought you popped into the world with ACT or, or AC prior to ACT. Um, but there's so much history beyond that. And that's some of the stuff I want to talk about a little bit here today. If that's okay cool. with you, we're going to go in the way back machine. So, you know, first of all, we're not going to talk about the Seminoles. We're not going to, this isn't going to be an FSU Seminoles podcast. I just want to make that very clear to you. And it's my podcast. So I get to decide. Absolutely. Are you okay with the ground rules? Uh, absolutely no no problem well this year there was not a lot to uh, brag about with Seminoles. yeah exactly how about that uh, except when they except when they beat miami yeah well that's that's been every year recently but how about that uh the national championship game though that was that was pretty exciting pretty interesting really well i enjoy any time nick saban loses so uh i don't really care who it is i don't really care how it's just fun to watch him lose but that's a typical Miami Dolphins fan because he came down here and made all kinds of promises and then did everything he said he wasn't going to do. So we don't like him much. I remember that. Yes. So, uh, well, like he was definitely not going to leave. Yeah. So aren't you originally like a Miami guy? I don't know if you were born. I think you were born in New York, but no, 
Yeah, I, I, I'm originally a, a New Yorker, born in the Bronx, went to school in the Bronx until high school, and uh, then we, my, my folks moved to Miami Beach. So I went to Beach High, uh, and I, I, I remember a lot about Miami, the old Miami Beach. Um, I remember Lincoln Road when it wasn't a mall. Yeah. And, and we lived in South Beach. We moved first to South Beach, um, and we lived at the Starlight Hotel on Ocean Seven Fifty Ocean Drive when it was just built. You lived at a hotel. 50s. Well, because we didn't have a, a, a regular place yet, and we we oh. eventually got an apartment, and then we we built a house. I see. But, yeah, so you were you were in Miami Beach when it was still a shithole though. Like it wasn't the, the killer that, South beach that it is today. It was old people and criminals. That's correct. Well, I, I don't remember the criminals so much then, but I remember the old people. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's amazing how much it's changed. And now, you know, probably wherever that hotel was is now some hotel. It still that, is. Oh, it still is. It still is. It's still the starlight hotel. Oh, wow. The ocean drive. Yeah. But it's probably a thousand bucks a night now or something. Uh, who knows? Yeah. Yeah. It's so expensive. I don't even go to South Beach anymore. I used to go there all the time, but I lived a lot closer. Now I'm up in Palm Beach. So it's a little bit, uh, it's a bit of a jaunt to get down there. So you, so when, when, how old were you when you moved to Miami Beach? Ish. I was about 11 years old. Oh, okay. And you stayed there until high school? I, I still I, I stayed through high school and then I went away to college at Florida State. That's correct. Yeah, and so when you went to college, did you go there for theater or for lighting or any of that stuff, or did you have a different path? In no, mind? I, I I I knew nothing about it, and I, I didn't know what I was going to do. I I, I went there because I, I played on the tennis team, and, and I got. A partial scholarship. And oh, wow. When you think about scholarships then and now, um, I think tuition was $300 a quarter. They covered that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, I, who knows what tuition is now and yeah. what it costs. But, uh, but I, I played tennis. I, w I wasn't very good, but good enough to play. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and then I discovered theater because I needed a part-time job and I, and I worked at, at the theater and at, at that time was called Westcott auditorium, which is now Ruby diamond auditorium. And that was the roadhouse. And it was a fully rigged stage with a thyrotron reactor dimming system. And um, it, it was pretty cool. And, and my first job was operating a carbon arc trooper. Interesting. And, um, and, and that became part of that community. You know, we were a close knit group of people and, uh, and we did all the, all the road shows that came in. I mean, I mean, ballets, operas. I mean, we, we, we did a lot of stuff and, um, and I got hooked on theater. By running a super trooper. Well, and, and rigging the theater. I, I mean, we, every aspect of, of maintaining a theater we did. Plus we did all the stadium shows, the shows at the gym, shows like the who, and you know, I mean, we did all of that. So we, we were the, we were the stage crew at the university. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's it's amazing how many people rose to such really, really enormous levels in our industry. You know, Marty Hom and Wiseman, of course, and so many of these people I talked to started at their university. And, you know, back then, like you said, they were booking acts like The Who and like Journey and like, you know, maybe not Journey, it was a little pre-Journey, but, uh, you know, just massive acts were coming through colleges and universities. Yeah, you know, we we uh, we enjoyed that, and um, it was a, re- a great learning experience in terms of learning theater technology from the ground up. Yeah, yeah. So from there, so did you graduate with some sort of a, a degree in theater or in lighting or anything? No, 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 no. My my bachelor's degree was in social studies education. Because my original plan, because I didn't come from a wealthy family, my, my you know, father drove a taxi. Right. My plan was to get a job teaching to put myself through law school. Okay. To pay for law school, I would take go to law school at night. But then I fell in love with theater, and it's it's kind of like I say, running away with the circus. Yeah. Yeah, so, As a matter of fact, we had a circus at Florida State, so we we used to train our follow spot, our super trooper operators, lighting the, the trapeze artists, which was um, really incredible. But, you, you know, it, it was, um, how should I say, uh, I got, I got, I got taken by, by, by theater and, and by performing arts and we formed our own little lighting and sound company there called Wednesday Light and Sound. Oh, that's in, in Tallahassee? Global. Yeah, yeah. We, we uh, founded it on a Wednesday. <laughs> and, 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 you know, we were very creative. Back then, uh, acts didn't, most acts did not travel with their sound and lighting. Packages. Right. Right, that it was, was more regional, that. right? It was about... 500 mile radius. There was a list that all promoters had of capable companies within that radius. So we, we would do shows for one act, one night, and then we travel somewhere else and do another show for another act. And you know, we'd we we we'd be in our truck and we'd pull into the first gas station in town and go, uh, "Where's the rock show tonight?" Yeah. You know, and that's how we found our way around. But, you know, that, that was early on. We used 2K Lico's, uh, a couple of auto transformer uh, lighting and dimming packages. Uh, you know, there was no such thing as trust then. You know, we had bases and pipes and outriggers and, yeah, you know, and lots of heavy cable. It's amazing that, uh, you know, someone who probably became famous for selling such high technology, you know, started with none, right? Well, the highest technology was actually at at the auditorium because they had this, the first electronic dimmers, the the, uh, Firetron reactor dimmers. And um, it was like an SCR dimmer, except it wasn't solid state. It used these big firetron tubes, which were also used in radars. So it, it was, um, that's where I, I, I first learned about dimming and electronics, maintaining those things. So was Wednesday, was one of the first, I'm sorry, I was, as I said, it was one of the first systems 
where the dimmers were backstage. Actually, it was in the in the basement, in the dimmer vault. Right. And the control system was out in the front of the house, you know, in the same booth as the follow spots. And so, you know, you know like on Broadway, most of the sh- yeah, it was cutting edge. Broadway shows were mostly resistance dimmers then. Yeah. Wednesday was a proper company. Like you actually went in and registered the company and you had partnerships yeah. and ownership and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. We were a company and we, we had uh, employees and we owned a truck, a Mac B61 thermodyne diesel with huh. a 10 speed direct transmission. And whoever was doing sound couldn't drive that truck to the gig because it was too loud. It would ruin your, your hearing for the gig. Um, and, and we, and we had a small trailer and we had an old school bus that, that the rest of the crew would try tumbling and we, we'd go do shows. How many owners in the company? Three. Yeah. And so what, what happened? You guys just split up and went your own separate ways at some point? Well, yeah. And, and um, Rusty, who, who really, Rusty Vernon, who founded it, who was, uh, Believe it or not, an ex-Navy UDT, which were like the SEALs of their day, uh, yeah. big guy, black belt in judo. He um, ended up being a, a production manager and, and running several of the sheds, the amphitheaters, like in Atlanta and Jacksonville and uh, actually out here in, um, in Southern California. The, he ran the Performing Arts Center in Oxnard. So... Mm-hmm. He did all of that and then retired, and he's back in Tallahassee. It was uh, Jack Lavin, who's, um, who really gave me my first crescent wrench, and he's, he now lives on Marathon Key fishing every day. Oh, cool. And, you know, yeah. and, and I just needed to get out and, and see the real world, so um, I ended up migrating. When a show came in with Leon Russell, and the uh, rhythm section was the Gap Band, and it had the same uh, backup singers that Eric Clapton used, Yvonne Eilman. It was a great show, and, and, and I literally left town with it. We were building outdoor stages, and, uh, you know, so I went on the road with Leon Russell and the Gap Band. Huh. And that's how I ended up leaving Tallahassee. Interesting. Interesting. So, so now you're a touring guy. I, I, yeah, I started doing that in the, in the very early seventies, uh, like, like 70, 71. Was that with, uh, the company out of, uh, out of Nashville, Knoxville, Ter- Knoxville. Yeah. Terry Knoxville. productions, right? Ter- yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So, so I, I, I moved to Knoxville and lived in a log cabin and Fun. And I was always on the road. Well, I mean, we were on the road with Olivia Newton-John, like Leon Russell. We we did some stuff with the James Gang, Charlie Daniels, Marshall Tucker. Oh, wow. Cool. And we built all their systems. Like Charlie Daniels and Marshall Tucker, we literally built their lighting systems. And, and our big one was ZZ Top then. And we built the systems for ZZ. And toured with them for almost three years. So how'd you end up in the, in LA then if you were out touring? Because, and this is a sad story. Uh, it snowed and I, I lived on top of a hill in Knoxville 
And I got off the road in deep snow and ice, and and, and I couldn't take it. My The pipes in my house froze in my log cabin. And Jim Moody, I don't know if you remember Jim. Yeah, of course, yeah. Well, Jim, I you used to run into him all the time on the road. He crossed paths. And he was doing Linda Ronstadt at the time in the Eagles. And Jim offered me several times. He goes, listen, come to L.A., I'll set you up, work for me. That was Sundance Lighting. And, you know, come on out. You've got a job. And when my pipes froze and it was snowy and icy up on top of the hill and I couldn't drive really well in that, I, I moved to California. L.A. Uh, started looking real good right about then, huh? Yeah. Well, the weather certainly did. Yeah. And and we and, and uh, Sundance was in the old Columbia Studios. Right. right. The Sunset Gower lot, which ended up being when Columbia moved out, it ended up being a rock and roll lot. So sound stages, McManus was there, Sundance was there, C Factor was there, uh, SIR was there. Uh, they were building sets there. We had a commissary. That, that it was sort of, sort of like food and, sort of like an early version of Rock Lidditz, right? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, very early. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, and you could buy buy a healthy sandwich with sprouts and. Go out back and, and buy uh, weed, you know, pot and cocaine <laughs> yeah, to wash it, was, it down. It was everything. Yeah, the, the the trucks would pull in empty, and they would leave with everything. With their instrument rentals from SIR, their sets would be built there. Uh, sound and lighting. Huh. What a concept! And, and that was like seven nineteen seventy five. Yeah. And so, didn't you end up with C Factor too out there? I did. I, I, I did. Um, he, um, Sundance, Jim was always on the road. And he was the guy I had the connection with. And, and he left this lady, Tina, Tina Hagerman, back in charge. And she was just impossible to work for. And Tony Mizuchi was running C Factor out, out in the, the other side of the lot. And. He hired me, and I went to work for him. So, uh, you know, we were doing things like Richie Blackmore's Rainbow, and you know, and we did Angel. I tell you, you saw the picture. Yeah, yeah, that's a great uh, picture. I'm gonna, I'm gonna post that with this podcast, by the way, because that's a good one. You, you can, and and the lighting guy that I went out and did that with was John Broder. You know, oh JB? wow, of course I know JB. Of Metallica so me and fame. JB, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no, I, so me I, and JB, I JB went out, and you talked about the white outfit. Right? Yeah. Well, we we got to the first gig, uh, like, in Milwaukee, I think. It was in a theater in Milwaukee. And we flew in, and they were used, They didn't have great facilities, so they were using the, uh, the tour bus as the dressing room for the band. And we walk in there, and there are all these flimsy white costumes hanging yeah. in the bus. And I look at JB, and I said, I didn't know this was a chick band. <laughs> and he goes, it wasn't. Yeah. And, and it's funny, you know, that, that was the glam rock days, and those guys were in full makeup. Oh, I remember the them. I remember them well. Like, weren't they actually discovered by Kiss, too? You know, which is remarkable. Yeah. Like Gene yeah, Simmons, yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah, Casablanca Records, and I think it was Lee Joseph, their manager. Yeah. A lot of money went into them. The uh, 
Doug Henning, remember him, the yeah, illusionist? Of course, yeah. Doug Henning and, and, and Disney, Walt Disney Productions, did their opening illusion. Oh, I didn't know it, that. It big, oh, yeah, it was big money. Yeah. It reminds me of Spinal Tap, which I ended up being involved with at one time. Yeah. Um, but, you, you know, so we would we would do those shows and so wait a second so you and you and jb so how how who was doing what jb and i were on on the lighting crew and i forgot who the actual guy that was originally designer but jb and i ended up running the show wow that's awesome so, you know, these guys are always in makeup. So in the beginning of the tour, we had two buses, one for the crew, one for the band. Yeah. And there was too much crew because we had, you know, a big a big crew and a big show for back then. And uh, we had to draw straws to see one of the crew had to, had to go on the band bus. <laughs> and I threw the short stuff. Oh, so, no. So I ended up, ended up on the band bus. And we are like in Indiana, Missouri, and you know, stopping at truck stops. And Punky, Punky Meadows, yeah. would not leave the bus unless he was in full makeup. What? I can't tell you how many. Yeah, no, he, he couldn't be seen by other human beings unless he was in full makeup. Hair done, the whole thing. Oh, Jesus. And I, we would get out eat breakfast at a truck stop, and I, and I have to go out and decide platform shoes, full makeup, and like in Indiana somewhere. <laughs> Every day I thought I was going to lose my life. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It was, in, it, Indiana it, it people a, don't really know how to take a, you know, a six foot something tall, skinny white guy dressed in, you know, that fancy white who, outfit. Who, with who long, by the way, was the most heterosexual guy you'll ever meet. Yeah. yeah. But they didn't see it that way. Yeah. It's crazy. That's and crazy. Greg Jafria, do you remember him? Yeah, of course. Yeah, he was in that band, His right? His band, Jafria. Wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, he was a keyboard player. Yeah, oh, I yeah. thought he was in. I thought he was an angel. Yeah, I remember Jafria. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's my that's my musical, you know, upbringing, right? I'm a little bit younger than you. I'm 57, but I, uh, you know, it all kind of started for me with Led Zeppelin, and uh, you know, certainly before that, the Beatles and Elvis, but. Well, you're um, Canadian, so probably Bachman Turner Overdrive. BTO was a big part of my upbringing, and and the Guess Who, and then of course oh, Rush yeah. and Triumph and all that stuff. But no, I mean, when you talk about bands like Angel and Jufria, and you know that was right in sort of my heyday. They all kind of got big at the end of the '70s, early '80s, and uh, so that's really when I was, you know, I was a musician at that time too. So I appreciated good music. Yeah, I was or a musician, I but a really, a, a really poor musician. So. Yeah, yeah, I, I, uh, I was probably not that great either. I, I was really just there for the party and the fun, and you know, I, I wasn't smart or hardworking enough to get into the lighting business and the production business like most uh, people that I have on this show. But um, so I tried to do it as a musician for a while, and then I just kind of went, you know. Like the arithmetic wasn't working too well for me because I was making two hundred bucks a week and spending two fifty on my bar tab. So, yeah, it just yeah. Uh, there was no future in that. Let's just say, I, you need to be a math major. Yeah, exactly. So, you were on the road then for how long? 
I, I was on the road uh, up in, through 19, the end of 1980. In, in, um, I mean, I, I did tours um, with Elvis Presley, believe it or not. Oh, wow. How was that? What was that like? It, it, uh, it was a very, a very strange tour, and it was the fad illness. Yeah, um, and and we were just trucks follow follow Super Trooper around because he didn't have any stage life, right? Because they had a rig. It was the first show that we ever did that was uh, three sixty in the round. Yeah, and so they back then rigging wasn't so uh, wasn't so advanced, if you will. So yeah, the only thing they were able to rig, we had some McManus sound baskets. And we rigged the sound, um, and they didn't—they weren't rigging lighting, and there wasn't anything such as trust back then. So, um, you know, we just used eight eight super troopers around the arena to light the stage. Are those some of the shows that we've uh, seen, like video, or they've been televised and stuff? Because I, you know, I've seen a bunch of Elvis in the round, Fat Elvis in the round. Uh, with yeah, just follow spots, so that's the stuff you were doing. Yeah, that was the stuff. I was oh, doing. that's pretty cool. So that I mean, touring with Elvis had to be a little bit crazy. Well, you would never tour more than three weeks, and you would stay at shitty hotels like Ramada Inns. He would he would do a thing, and and, and the groupies were in their forties and fifties. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, you know, it, 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 it was interesting, and, and, and Elvis himself was not all that coherent. I mean, he wasn't a guy you could go to the back and have a conversation. Right, right. Yeah, this this was past the sort of Beatlemania era of Elvis, right? Like when yes. when girls were going crazy and throwing their underwear at him and stuff. Now, now they were yeah, ladies, well, and yeah, not so much underwear. And, throwing. and he would throw his scarves. He, throw his scarf into the audience. Right. Yeah, it's actually, but you know, this, my mom grew up on Elvis, so I, I not grew up, but my mom was a massive Elvis fan, and so I grew up with her listening to Elvis, and she loved him so much, and to see what he became was kind of a drag, you know, just like how yeah. fat and sweaty, and, you know, he just, yeah, it got pretty messy at the end there. But ZZ Top was was the major tour we did in '76, the worldwide Texas tour. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, you can go on YouTube and, and pull some of that stuff up. Yeah. Um, and so, by now, were you, what were you doing on these tours? Were you still a tech, or were you an LD, or? Well, well, by by ZZ Top, I was the master electrician and the board op. Okay. Um. Dave Blaney was the LD, but but I really ran the show. And after that, all the shows I did, I was always the lighting designer and then lighting designer and production manager. Like when I started REO, I started off as their their, their lighting designer and ended up being their design. Because they, when we went overseas, they wanted to save money. So lighting designer and production manager, uh, you know, so I did two jobs. Yeah. When we got really big, it got too big to do both. And so I became just the production manager. Huh. So you were with REO early, like when they were in their in their heyday, right? When they were big. 
Yeah, I, I was there when they got there. Uh, oh, wow. I was there. Yeah, I, I, I was started with REO, and I'm trying to remember. I'm looking, I'm in my house, in my office, looking at my gold and platinum records on the wall. Yeah. Uh, you can tune a piano, but you can't tune a fish. And, yeah. You know, uh, high high infidelity. And oh, yeah, those were the that. massive so, yeah, albums, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We followed John Lennon, Yoko Ono, Double Fantasy into number one and stayed there. Jesus. For like a year. And you so, did that for a while, so we right? Doing, like five years or something. Yeah, it was, well, about a little over three years. Okay. We 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 were on the uh, we toured the world. We did stadiums everywhere. Uh, I did a show rock pop in Germany, which is my last show. And we had like Ario, and it was Tom Petty and Loverboy, and you know, it, it, it was a huge show. And it was me and this other upcoming lighting designer, a guy named Patrick Woodruff. Oh, him! <laughs> oh, him! Yeah, I'm kidding. Yeah, Jesus, that's and massive. When I when I got to L.A., I tried my hand at, at, at uh, the movie industry, and I did one movie. The Rose with Bette Midler. Yeah. And and I worked with Chip Monk on that. Oh, that's cool. Is is uh have you spoken to him anytime recently? Yeah, I'm, I'm in touch with him all the time. So he's... matter of fact, I'm looking here outside my office at a picture of him focusing two K Lico's at Woodstock. Wow. That's a picture taken by Henry Dilts. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. Next to a picture of Eric Clapton when I toured with him. Wow. So when you were in LD... The Eric Clapton tour... Okay. Go on. Tell me about Eric Clapton. I was going to say Eric. And we did the first tour, Play Layla, 74, when he had just gotten off of heroin and became an alcoholic. Hmm. That was an interesting tour. Yeah. I can only imagine. Yeah. From, uh, you, you can't. He was the most abusive alcoholic. You, you, you oh, yeah. No, that's that's no fun. But what a guitar player! Yeah, amazing, huge, huge talent. But you know, some some yeah. of these guys they find their inspiration from some of the worst uh, places. That's for sure. So when you were in LD, what console were you using? Well, uh, when we did. When we did uh, Taking Texas of People, I went to EDI up in Oregon. Yeah. You know, the Scrimmer Dimmers. Yeah. Uh, and, and the EDI console, and I had them build me a console with 60 presets. Uh, and then we had pins built with resistors in them. So you could, you know, if you remember the pin matrix, it was either on or off. Yeah. But we had these resistive pin matrix pins built. So I could actually program scenes, um, you know, with, with mo- multiple levels, you know, 25%, 50%, 75%, 100%. Yeah. So so th- that was the first one. But, but then when we went to REO, I actually needed more control channels than like the Avalite's desk would offer. So we, um, I, I used a light, a strand, a century light palette. Jeez. A computerized console, because I, I had like 
200 some odd channels because, you know, back when you had six uh, control handles, yeah, you know, some you had like 6K washes, or they, I broke every so I could break up you know, groups of fixtures and use them in other ways. Yeah. So I, I so I, I learned the light palette and, and, and used it on the road. And it also allowed me to concentrate because I had four house spots and four truss spots. A show code system, by the way. Yeah. So um, it, it, it allowed me to concentrate on, on, on being really tight with my spot kids. So... Yeah, I did that for two years, and when I became production master, Joey Travato, and I don't know if you remember him. I don't, know. Joey ran the console for Queen for a few years. He was there when Parnelli was on the crew. Jesus. Yeah, and uh, but I had him run. The computer was just too strange for him. Yeah. And so he, he ended up have, having to, to get a 96-channel AVO desk. Right, yeah. It, it changed the way the show was. and But I took that. I, I took that light palette around the world. I mean, I was running shows in Japan with a light palette. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's just it's a remarkable time period to me, like looking back at this stuff and, you know, like, we sound old when we say this stuff and we are, I guess, but when you, when you say, you know, kids nowadays, but, um, so many of the young up and coming board ops or lighting directors, lighting designers learned on either a hog tour newer, you know, they learned on a hog tour yeah. or a MA or whatever, you know, they have to go back yeah, yeah. to a, a QM or something, you know, and they're lost. They're like, well, what? even a Q1 was a memory desk. Yeah. So, you know, you know, but, but you know, the, the point was that lighting is still about the looks, about contrast, uh, about color mixing. You, you know, the things have really nothing to do with the console. Right. I mean, I used to tell people when, when, when I brought Hog 2 into the country, I used to tell people it's a phenomenal console. With almost no effort, you can light a perfectly awful, ugly show. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah. So, no, lighting really doesn't have anything to do with the console as much as it has to do with the art. With yeah. Creating the, the pictures, the looks. Yeah. I, I still go back on YouTube now, and some of the early stuff I did, the early MTV stuff I did, was really still looks good to me, even though I didn't have the, the kind of tools that, that people have now. Right. Yeah. Talk about Canadian. One of, one of the, one of the favorite tours I did strangers was, uh, the number one on the Canadian charts, Gino Vanelli. Jesus. Remember Gino? Of course I remember Gino Vanelli. Love Gino. Vanelli. So Gino Vanelli. We were doing a, a five camera shoot in, in new Orleans at the uh, public auditorium there. And I had an OB lighting system. And I, I was in the middle of queuing the show. And because we had to hang it a little further upstage than normal because of the way the building was configured, my only real key lighting was the supers. 
And so halfway through the, the show and the film shoot, all of a sudden the spot operators are not, um, are not communicating with me. I would, I would call for a cue and nothing would happen. So I thought the headsets must have gone out. So I send my electrician up to check and see if that was the problem. And he got up there as the New Orleans Police Department was arresting all of the <laughs> union spot operators for selling dope. Oh, my God. Only in our freaking so business, was, huh? Yeah. So <laughs> It's crazy. So I ended up having to send room. The one Carbonard spotlight they did not use. Oh wow! So and we did our short, our Montreal show, the old forum. You know, fifty below weather, loading the trucks outside. Yeah, well, that's pretty much every show in Canada, right? Well, I, I, I did, we did a ZZ Top Heart Cross Canada tour, and. You know, I'm a guy, even though I grew up in New York, you know, in high school and college, I lived in Miami Beach in, in Tallahassee, Florida. And all of a sudden, we're up there, and, and it, it was 50 below. I mean, the toilets on the bus broke, right? <laughs> uh, we lost pleasant. the truck in, in Thunder Bay because uh, they didn't have a, a block heat, engine block heater. And, oh, my God. Yeah, you, know, you know, that kind of stuff, and... And we saw grizzly bears driving through Banff. <laughs> <That's laughs> Welcome to the frozen north. Yeah. The tundra. And, and, and when we tried to, uh, the driver who, who was from Nashville, right? So a lot he knew about this stuff. Yeah. Tried to dump the head. And, uh, of course, it immediately, once the valve opened, it immediately froze. And we, we couldn't get ahead until we were in, uh, where where do they have the Chinooks? In Edmonton or Calgary? Calgary? Yeah, Calgary, where I'm Calgary. from. Calgary. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so, so we pulled the bus. We had to check the airline and some other stuff. So after, you know, the head was frozen open, pulled it in because they, they had to basically thaw out the bus before they could start working on it. And we forgot about the, uh, the the valve to the to the head. Oh no! So we were less than popular, right? Yeah. And in Canada, and, and we we I learned about that you you had to warm up the cable and the lamps before you use them. So we would have all our cable west coasted in big canvas hampers and roll it into the boiler room of these venues to thaw out because. Especially all the multi-cable then was that gray plastics. Yeah, it otherwise rubber. it would just crack, right? It would crack. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. And you have... Or the filaments would just blow. Yeah. It was... You know, welcome to the frozen north. Yeah. So when you came off the road, like 80s, early 80s, right? Yeah, I came off the road... In December of 82, we had just, I, I, we were with Ario in Europe, and we had just done that major TV show in, 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 in Dortmund in Westfall and Hollow with Patrick Woodruff. And, uh, and that was my last show. And I got off the road, and Ricky Farr, who at that time owned TFA, 
me to run the lighting division. So I literally went into running the lighting division at TFA in December of 72. 82. Uh, pardon, 82. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, the first thing we did when I, when I ran that, we, we were lighting Spinal Tap, the movie. Wasn't wasn't uh, Marshall from TMB? Wasn't he there prior to you, or at the same he, time, or something? He, yes, he no, he was there prior to me. When he left, I took over. Oh, literally, I, I took the same position he had held. Oh, okay, right. So uh, we we were doing Spinal Tap then. Yeah, which was which was. No less than hilarious. I can't even imagine um, what that was and, like. And then, and, and then Rod Stewart and Queen. We did the first Rock and Rio. Jesus. And then after Rock and Rio, we reconfigured that system while in Brazil to do um, a Yes tour of South America. And of course, when Yes got to Argentina, it was just after the Falklands War. So that was the first British band to play in Argentina after the war. So Ward Carlisle, my electrician, would, would be calling me late at night going, okay, we're doing a show in Rosario, and they're bombing the bots off. The government's trying to confiscate the gear. And I needed all that gear back, but the next show we had to do was clean. So it was an interesting bunch of was That's wild. That's wild. So, 42nd year that we're married. Okay, say um, that again cuz you kind of dropped out there for a second. I by said, by the way, Lisa, let me let me quickly apologize to our wonderful audience because uh Bob is on a cell phone and so it's kind of cutting in and out every now and then, but we're getting the gist of it. So when my wife was pregnant with our first child, it was um, early in the morning, and I get a call. We were, I was doing Rick Springfield. At that time, I think we had already become Electrotech. We had changed from DFA. So it, it was, I had gotten the call from our production coordinator, Wendy Stein, that our lighting truck for Rick Springfield, remember him? Of course. Crashed in Texas. As it turned out, the, drive, the driver from upstaging, uh, and actually, uh, instead of having four days to drive cross country, drove straight through to his girlfriend in Texas, and then tried to make it all up, you know, like in one day. Oh, so he, he, I think he fell asleep, went off the road, oh, destroyed no. the lighting system. The, the truck ripped, torqued and ripped just behind the uh, dance floor. And I had custom trusts. I had... You know, brand new Avalite dimmers, a QM500, had all of this this stuff, and and I had a show in two days in Miami oh, at the Sportatorium. Yeah. So, so I got that news at five thirty. By six thirty, my wife elbows me and says, "Time to go." So, off to the hospital. And we didn't have cell phones then, but I had several rolls of quarters a legal pad, a book with phone numbers, and in between contractions, I'd go to the payphone in the hall and call welders, lighting companies, insurance people, 
you know, let's put together a major show in two days. Wow. And then, and then my son was born. That's crazy. Didn't you meet your wife while you were, uh, while you were out with Ario or something? No, my, my wife had nothing, had, had no love for rock and roll. My wife, a concert to her was the LA Philharmonic. Oh, really? Um, my wife, my wife and I lived in the same apartment house in Sherman Oaks while she was a doctoral student at UCLA. She, she did all our undergraduate work at Stanford and did her doctoral work at UCLA. And we lived in the same apartment house and she was awfully cute. And we got to speaking one day and, and I had to go advance a major Midwestern tour with Ferrario. So she drove me to the airport. She made me supper, drove me to the airport, and said, tell me when you're coming back, I'll pick you up. I mean, to a road dog. Yeah, that's pretty I mean, amazing. She could, she, could, she could not have done more the right thing. And we were married within four months. And we're still married. Wow. Love her dearly. Good for you. That's incredible. That's a nice story. Yeah. So yeah, and, and and when Ario was recording My Infidelity, which was I don't know seven times platinum that year, they wanted me to come to the studio with Crystal Recorders in Hollywood. They wanted to come to the studio, and I go, "I'm your lighting guy, production manager. Why do you want me in the studio? What can I offer?" Because you just feel comfortable when you're around. Oh. Uh-huh. They always felt like I was so in charge of everything. Right. I really, I really had nothing to offer there. I'm not, you know, much of a musician. And, right. You know, and, but so, I was there, and so and Lisa would go with me, and she would sit in the back of the control room knitting. Oh, really? She was so disinterested, so disinterested, and they, and they were writing songs like the song "In Your Letter." They wrote there in the control room. Jeez. And recorded, you know, all of that stuff. So. Did any of that eventually mean something to her? Like, did she go, oh, wow, I was there when they recorded that song, you know, some of the hits and stuff? Absolutely not. Really? That's hilarious. That's funny. Just not a fan. Yeah, my wife my wife had to learn to enjoy rock and roll after meeting me. Yeah. And she had, and she had to en- learn to enjoy football because she couldn't care less about that. And she goes, well, when he's off the road, he's watching football. I, right. I'm going to spend time with him. I, 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 I better learn about this. Yeah, stuff. football and rock and roll, probably two of her least yeah. favorite things in the whole world. Right. Yeah, so how did you, you at some point started a sales career, obviously. So, I mean, you were the touring lighting guy, and then you were running the lighting department at TFI. And, and how did you end TFA, up selling well, stuff? I left, TFA, I left electric. TFA became Electrotech. Mm. Uh, and when I left Electrotech, I just did my own freelance thing for a while. I, uh, I, I'd known enough about engineering that I would design custom structures for the industry. And I had a great welding company, and, and I designed, um, for upstaging, I designed these uh, motorized lifts that were certified to have you, uh, humans on top. Uh, we did that for George Thorogood. Uh, and you, you could have two lifts, lift the truss section, 
and have two spot operators on top. Oh. And it was legal. I designed those some lifts for Disney. I designed um, these trussing, uh, trussing system for the Marlboro Country Music Tour that had track in it for uh, drops and curtains and so where, yeah, where, actually did, where in your social studies, uh, education and, you know, lighting design experience, where did you learn, uh, how to engineer manufacturing products like that? Well, when I, when I took over at TFA, right. we had a lot of trust, trust designed by uh, John McGraw and, yeah. um, you know, that was all the trust that we used on our tours. And I had to learn how to get it certified. And I had an engineer working with me and learned about what, what truss is, how it works, what compression is, you know, how, how it lifts a load. And, and so I just picked it up. I, I didn't have any training. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I did all of that, and I was actually doing pretty well with that stuff. It was all expensive stuff. I designed the world's largest mirror ball those years. What was that was, for? It was a, that was for Coca-Cola's is it 100th anniversary or 200th anniversary, whatever. It was designed to hang in the middle of, I'm trying to remember what the name of the um, arena in Atlanta was back then. Yeah. This was in the 70s. Uh, no, this was in the early 80s. And... Um, Whatever, it was a 30, 30 foot uh, diameter, mirror ball. It took half a semi because the way I designed it to break up and, and go on these custom skids. And... Jeez. So, all of, yeah, I, I, I mean, with a 17 horsepower mortar to turn it. And, how you are know. these people finding you to build a 30 foot mirror ball though? Like, how, uh, you know, well, let's call Bob Gordon. Where'd that come from? Well, you know, a lot of that, a lot of this stuff in our industry was word of mouth. Right. Who does this? Who does that? Yeah. Um, and I had been at, and I had gotten actually um, fairly successful doing the structural stuff I was doing. And I had a structural engineer, Gary Myers, who provided all the documentation, and, you know, and, and all the certified structural designs. And he rarely had to do very much um, to change what I was doing. And I learned about what critical wells were. And, you know, anyway, the problem was, and if, if your mind goes back to then, there was a period of time when the insurance industry went nuts. City parks were closing because they couldn't, municipalities couldn't get insurance to um, to insure them for the for the kids uh, like the swings and you know all that stuff so they they couldn't be insured and this was you know back in was before just before two thousand it was it was dire and and I wasn't incorporated I you know and so I was personally liable I'm here I'm doing structural projects for upstaging for Disney for Coca Cola for yeah right. right. And so I was, I was responsible. If one of the, God forbid something happened and people died, not only was I out of business, but I was bankrupt and probably, uh, you know. 
in yeah. trouble with the law. So I stopped that and had to figure out what to do. So I started my own sales company, uh, just myself in the back bedroom of my house in Calabasas. Like a independent and rep kind of thing? I called it List. It was the Lighting Innovation Sales Team. Okay. And my friends at the RDS Corporation in, in Japan, who I did a lot of work with back in my GAM days, uh, they would order their lamps from me. Not because they were the world's largest lighting manufacturer, not like they couldn't do it, but it gave them an excuse to keep me making money. And people would, yeah, I would just put deals together. Um, but this was previous to GAM, wasn't it? This was previous, just previous to GAM, but I knew the people. Oh, I see. Joe Tawil, who was the owner of GAM, said, Bob, I want you to come and be my Who we just lost recently, just a few months ago. We just lost. Yeah. I, I contributed to that article. Yeah. Uh, and Joe said, and I said, Joe, you know, I'm a lighting designer. I'm a production manager. I'm not a salesman. And he said, Bob, I know salesmen, you're a salesman. I went there and introduced the first color changers. I introduced GAM color. I introduced the, the access lighting console. Work. Yeah. Oh, that was a so big, big time five, for them. I sold 500 of those in the first year. Jesus. I know. And, and 500 in the second year. I took GAM from a million dollars to over $3 million. Wow. In less than three years. Were you the, the only and, sales guy or? Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, I was, I was the sales guy. So you were busy. And, um, I was a busy guy. I was traveling all the time. Yeah. Traveling in Asia. I, I did a lot of work in, in Asia. I did a lot of work in Europe where I met David Leggett was from there and yeah. So I, I learned all the dealers in the U.S. and uh, um, introduced three or four major projects. Uh, Color Max, Color Wiz, Gam Color Access. And things that I could. So how how was he paying you? Like, was he paying you as an independent rep or he was paying you just as a no, commission no, no, sales I was guy? A, or? I, was, I was on a salary oh, okay. with a commission. And that was my... Um, that's what ended my, my job there because as you could see how fast that growth was yeah. at the end, he said to me, goes, says, Bob, you've done a great job for me. I'm going to cut your commissions in half because you're making much more money than I am. Huh. And I said, well, why don't you just consider this my two week my, my, my two-week warning, I'm, 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 I'm leaving. What he didn't know was that Kenny Whitwright at that time was after me to, to, to go to Wyvern. come to Wyvern. Right, right. So he says, well, just handle one more. You've got that Broadway seminar that you're scheduled to lead. And so, okay, I'll do that. And when I get back, I'm out of here. Went right to Wybron. I remember the first day. Kenny had, I think, four people, had never grossed more than three-quarters of a million dollars. The first day, I did 60 grand worth of sales. Oh, Jesus. 
That's when I met you. I met you, uh, I think I met you in the early 90s and you were still at Wybron. Well, I I think And you probably don't remember. Yeah, well. I'm not very memorable. There's a lot of stuff from those days. Well, there's a lot of stuff from those days I don't remember. Yeah, yeah, likewise. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, but but the when I was at Wybron, I did that and I made no salary. I made a hundred percent commission. Yeah. Was that your doing or his doing? That's what the deal he offered me and And, and I thought I could do it. So I accepted it. Yeah. I love that by the way. But I made 9% of the gross. Oh, wow. So think about it. By the time I I raised that company to $3 million plus. Yeah. You were doing okay. I was doing okay. I was probably the highest paid salesman in the lighting industry at that yeah, time. I think so. Based on what I was making, you you were, you know, a lot times the highest paid uh, sales guy in the yeah. moving light industry, that's for sure. And it, that, and that was my end at Wybron because, the, uh, you know, he couldn't, the deal he made, but he couldn't live with the deal. Yeah. Now, much to Kenny's, um, much, much to his credit, several years later, after I started AC and became act and yeah. did really well, I was at a show and he came up to me and he says, says, Bob, I just have to tell you, firing you was my biggest mistake. And I can tell by how you're doing now. Yeah, no shit, huh? That you, that, that you earned everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah you know. No, but, I love I love but, Kenny, but you know, it, it obviously didn't work out for him and did work out for you, so... Yeah, but 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 it takes it takes a lot um, in integrity and, and being a real man to yeah to say that. no no that's huge. So I assume you left there and now you were probably like a little pissed off or what is is that okay, what pushed he, you to start it, the new company? It, it's all coming after I left Wyburn is when I formed Lyft. That's right. Oh, that that that's when I did it, and I did that for about a year and a half. And David Leggett, the owner of AC Lighting yeah. in England, had always told me when I was at Wybron, if you ever want to join and start a company with me in the U.S., I'm up for it. Let's do it. And when I started List, Leggett called me. And he was kind of pissed at me. And he says, you know, I thought you'd call me when, when, you, when you were available. He said, um, let's start a company. And I said, well, let's talk about it. I said, let me develop a plan, a business plan. And I went to my friend's office up in Marin County, uh, overlooking the harbor and all the sailboats and, uh, and spent a week there writing a detailed business plan. Faxed it back to him. He agreed. And we started AC Lighting Inc. And that was '93. Hmm. Um, and, and you know, it's one thing to be a salesman; it's another thing to run a company. Well, so it's very different. But I guess you know, one of the great benefits to you was instead of starting from zero, you were starting A with a good brand name and B, I'm guessing you had access to some product lines for the U.S. market, right? 
I, I did, and I had a good database. Yeah. Think about that, knowing who to call and what to sell to whom. Yeah. Um, and so I developed a plan and how our pricing would work and, you know, a very detailed plan. And I started in a 2,275-square-foot warehouse in Agora. Um, myself, a receptionist-slash-data-entry-slash-bookkeeper, and a shipping guy-slash-repairman. And we hit the ground running, and by the second year, you know, it sold a lot of cables. My yeah. first day, I sold $11,000 worth of multi, the TMB. Oh, really? First day? Yeah. So you first open, day. opened the business and got an order. That's a nice first because, order, 11 you know, grand. Eight, well, eight, AC Lighting sent me a couple of container loads of inventory. Oh, I see. And we had jams, and we had... Um, you know, some stands and so had some, had soccer packs. So, you know, we, we did that, but by the second year, you know, David had, had locked up uh, the hog the console distribution worldwide. Okay. So, so he says, do you think you could sell that in the U.S.? And this was not hog two yet. This was, was the original hog. You know, and Nils was here in, in Malibu, uh, Trying to sell, they only they only built and sold less than three dozen of the original hogs Total. worldwide. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, it, it was so small that they didn't have serial numbers; they had names, right? Which is interesting because you care a lot more about about you know Maryland than you do about O one one five two. Yeah, yeah. I was oh, I was I was actually at upstaging. When I don't remember if it was you who was there, I think it was you who was there demoing the console to them. The Hog One. Well, well, the original Hog One it was probably Nils. It might have been Nils. I don't and, remember who yeah. was there, but I just remember and, seeing and, it and, and going, "What the hell is this flying pig? What is this and, thing?" And, and, I know, and and, yeah. and, 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 and and you know, um, they used it for. I remember the, 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 uh, Nick Sholem for the police. Yeah, that might have been the that's demo that wanted. I was seeing. I yeah. don't know. Yeah, that's that's it. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because no, um, yeah, it was it was Sholem. You're right. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, I re I remember well. Yeah. Anyway, so we uh, I I took over I took over in the U.S. and we still had the Hog One and. They were just working on the hog too, and I told you I had a story about. Was oh, it yeah. nineteen ninety ninety three? When was the LBI in Reno where it snowed? And, uh, you, know, you couldn't find your. Yeah, I think it was it, it was ninety three. Yeah, I think you're right. I believe. Yep. Yeah. Any rate, so we had the hog too, except it didn't have electronics in it. It wasn't complete, but I wanted to show it. So we had a hog, an original hog behind the scenes running all the lights and the hog too. And I was doing, we talked about doing demos. That was my best doing demos when, when the console didn't work. Yeah. Because I would say, well, if this was working, this is what you would see here. And it was, it was hilarious. I sold the first five 
Hogtooth to Don Stern at Bash. Yeah. And then spent four or five months explaining why I couldn't send it to him. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, Don was great. Uh, so did you know, Don was one of the, like, did you know that you had a massive hit on your hands with that console? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I mean, do you know John Ingram? Yeah. Well, you know, John uh, designed all of all of the IBM show. Yeah. And I used to go watch John do it, and he would he would run a moving light, such as they were back then, right? Um, on an, an expression, and you, and when you run it on an expression. First of all, it's not a moving light. It's, it's a list of parameters mm-hmm. with values at each parameter. You know, who cares that blue is 72% on channel 32? Mm-hmm. You know, you just want blue. At any rate, and he would do this, and, and, and he got quite good at it, but it was still, and I, I saw the way a hog was from the original hog, that it was more organic, that it looked at a moving light as a moving light mm-hmm. and ran it with real world definitions, you know, iris, color, shutters, whatever, depending on the fixture. And so I knew that this made way the, more the sense. The syntax just sounded a lot more. It sounded, remember, I'm an, I'm an old lighting designer. Yeah. So the things that I knew were important to a lighting designer, I knew were important. Yeah. And, and look, so, I, I guess I, I was informed, but I was also lucky. Timing was right. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it obviously took off in a big way. And it was weird because it was such a disruptive product, if you look at it today, because prior to that, uh, a lighting console was about five or six feet wide, and it was as big as the front of house audio console was. And well, how many how many faders did you have to have across? Right, exactly. Channels. Yeah, it was two rows of ninety six faders. Yeah, so they were huge, plus a drawer for the cocaine and all that stuff too. You right, know, right, right. so you know now all of a sudden you got this tiny little two and a half foot wide console or whatever. And uh, like, I remember talking to Nils about that and, and saying, are like, maybe you should have spread it out a little bit. You're going to shock people with this thing. And, uh, but obviously it took off like crazy. I mean, we still see today used hog twos, uh, on gear source yeah. on my company. So it's, uh, it's by far the biggest success story at the time anyways, well, for, and for we lighting sold- consoles. And, you know, it's funny, it's a, it's a British console. But we sold more in the U.S. than they sold everywhere else. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I can my, believe my that. Biggest pro- yeah, my biggest problem with Hog 2s was getting enough. Yeah. And getting it in time. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And then, so, obviously, with the Hog 2, at some point, that thing... Uh, you know, we all know the history high end, uh, ended up buying the company and screwed you out of the distribution or whatever. Um, I'm sure that was a a sad moment for you because that had to be 50% of your sales, 30% of your sales. I don't know. Big percent. I'm guessing it it was probably 40% of my sales. Yeah. 
but a, another 20 or 30% of my sales was the jam zone. Oh, and they took that too? Well, not at first, but we were at, um, I was at Plaza eating, eating up, at, up at the Platinum Club when I saw Paul, Paul Mulholland from Jan's having lunch with the, with the high-end guys. Oh, boy. And I knew I was, I was screwed there, too. So it, 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 it was a time to figure out if I could survive as a company. Yeah. And how to survive as a company. Oh, that had to be, that had to be a really bad moment in Bob Gordon's life. I'm just thinking through that. Like all of a sudden you're losing, you know, potentially 60, 70% of your revenue. Like, did you have to lay off people? Did you have to cut expenses? No. No, Well, look, expenses weren't much of anything. I mean, I, I, I flew coach. Didn't have, you know, Lord didn't have a sales staff. I mean, you know, it, it was what it was. We we made our, our our P&L was incredible. Yeah. And I never had to lay off anyone. We didn't have many people to lay off. Yeah. <laughs> Think about it. But three people. We had four people by then because Glenn O'Donohue moved to the United States and went to work for me at that time, too, living in Boston. Right, yeah. With his, yeah. I remember so, that. wonderful guy. Yeah. Glenn is it's still one of my best friends in the whole world. Oh, but, Glenn's a good guy. You know, it, yep. So, you know, every, every console creator marched a line to my office. I would guess so, yeah, because was, you were so successful yeah. in launching the, the hog platform in the United States and sold more than anywhere else in, in the world and all that kind of stuff. So everyone wants include, a piece. Include, including Wayne from um, oh, with, with artistic license. Oh. You know, Wayne had, had, had designed a couple of unsuccessful consoles, the, the Catalina or, you know. Yeah. They designed a couple of consoles and the Ventura, that's what it was. Remember the Ventura? No, I don't. Of course not, but I think they made 10. Yeah. Um, and that was that was for um, if you weren't Avalites, what was the next biggest company? Oh, Compulite at that time. No, 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 no. Before Compulite, uh, British company. They made they they made the Aviator. That incredibly Compulite, didn't they? That no. company. No, no, no. Who no, was no, the Aviator? No. That was that other British company. Oh my was, God, was, we're both it, losing it. Right it was a, 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 yeah, yeah. Well, at any rate, point was that he was willing to design a console for me. Um, Trolls at Martin came to me and said, I'd like to turn over our console, at that time the case console, yeah, to you. Matter of fact, I flew to London and met with him and Christian Colbin. Said, we have another console we're developing that we think is going to take over You know, the, the moving light console world. Yeah, didn't have a name for it yet. Says and and you can have exclusive distribution of that too. When we need it, we'll get it from you. Put systems together, right? Uh, Gordon Perlman, yeah, offered to design a console for me, and he designed all of Morpheus's consoles. 
So you had the, you had the pick. Person. Yeah, I, I literally the pick of it. And then I saw the first grandma at LBI Phoenix. And the more I got into it, the more questions I asked, I was ready to make a deal. And that, and that, um, and I made a deal. I, I signed a letter of agreement with them to distri- distribute the grandma. Uh, you just knew when you saw it. Huh. There was no doubt in my mind. Everything I knew about console. Well, because I mean, MA Lighting had been around for a while at that point, right? It's just they were making right. relatively small things. Like, what did they have? The Scan Commander, right? The Scan Commander was a really creative console. Yeah. Uh, but they were making the mostly manual consoles with computer memory. Right. But even the Scan uh, yeah. Commander, I mean, it was cool, but it was small and boutique and kind of like. You know, it was European, you know. People love their scan commanders. People love their scan commanders. Yeah. Scan commanders uh, understood three-dimensional space. It, it was very advanced. Yeah. But why didn't it sell then? Because they didn't have distribution? They didn't have proper representation they, in the U.S.? They, Who did they have? have distribution. Did they have Group 1 or something? They, they had Group One, right? Yeah, and God bless them. Group One was where big brands went to die. Yeah, decent audio company. <laughs> yeah, well, I yeah. mean, look, look, and good, and good, and good people. And yeah, no, great people. Yeah, you, I, you made a good living on fun. cleaning up, <laughs> cleaning up Group yeah. One messes. There's a few of those along the way. Yeah, like Clay Packy. Clay Packy is another one that I want to talk about in a minute. Yeah. So yeah, no, but, I mean, but, but my point is that it was kind of a flyer that you're jumping head first into this grand uh, grandma console when you've just had this massive success with Hog. You've lost forty percent of your revenue on Hog and another twenty or thirty percent on on uh, Jan's Jan's Hog. Jan's Hog, and now you're taking a flyer on a, an obscure as far as Americans are concerned, an obscure German brand that not very many people have ever heard of. I didn't throw caution to the wind. Um, you know, I, I dove in and, and I was very evangelistic about, about the products. And remember I sold everyone hog too. Yeah. Now I had to come back and tell them why this was better than when I sold them yeah, the last time. I've done that a couple times in my career. It's always hard. <laughs> it's never that easy, you know. Well, I I, I, I remember um, Huntley Christie, right, invited me to Toronto in, in the um, what's what's the uh, baseball thing? Something the Sky, Sky Dome. Dome, yeah. So he invited me up. To the, they had a suite at the Sky Dome for their. Um, their meeting of all their general managers across both the U S and Canada. Okay. And I was selling them hog twos like crazy. And now I had to tell them I was invited to present grand grandma to them and all the general managers, right? Right. When, when you've got a brand new product, no one, no one specifies. Yeah. They, they don't really even know about it. I mean, you know, I, I want what worked for me on the last show. And they basically said, we don't want to hear about this. We want to continue to buy hog twos from you. I said, well, first of all, you can't buy them from me. And second of all, I'm going to tell you why this is better. And I made a presentation 
And they were polite but adamant that what they really wanted was to keep buying hot suits for me. Yeah. And I was just bummed out, so I went back to my room, and I get a call from Huntley. And Huntley says, you're leaving tomorrow morning, aren't you? I go, yep. He goes, you have a ride to the airport? And I go, nope. He goes, can I drive you? I go, I would love that, Huntley. And when we drove together, he was saying, listen, don't be disappointed. Remember, the company's name is my name. And one of my strengths is allowing my important management team to make decisions. I'm going to find a way to make them make that decision in your direction. Just trust me on that, and we'll do fine. My first big rental company order was from Christy Lights in the amount of 90 consoles. Jesus. Wow. That's massive. And, and of course, yeah, you think? Yeah, that's uh, huge. I mean, it was, qu- it, it was quite a deal. Yeah. I mean, I didn't make a lot of money. But, you know, when you distribute a console, people say, hey, this is great. I love it. Where can I rent it? Yeah. And if you don't, you know, if you can't send them where to rent it, their only option is well, it's it's a funny situation that you're bringing up, and it's one that I went through a few times in my life because I always liked to be the underdog. I didn't want to work for the top company. I wanted to work for the one that's you know once or twice removed from the top, right? Like Martin, you know, Martin. Trust me, that was that was not an easy task selling uh, Robo scans against cyber lights, you know. But I did it because that's right. what I that's what I had to sell, right? So. Um, but the thing is, it's a chicken and an egg scenario because lighting designers that you're showing the console to want to know where to rent it. Rental companies want to know who's specking it. And it's the same on lights, but it's probably much more difficult even on consoles because that's their life. I mean, to get a lighting designer to stop using hog and start using MA is that's a challenge and you know honestly like in in your favor i'll blow some smoke up your skirt you know at trade shows you were always probably if not the one of the hardest working guys i mean you were always stacked up four deep doing demos at the console and stuff and you know the penultimate always selling sales guy showing designers the console as much as you could because that's what you had to do right you know, it was it was almost more important was to create the systems within the company that support the programmers and technicians. Because a, as you know now, back when I was a lighting designer, we ran our own consoles. Yeah, it's, it's a lot more complicated now, and, and the people depend on a series of people like Troy Eckerman and yeah, you know. People, people that they trust and feel good about working with Eric Wade, yeah. you know, th- those types of people. And we always, we trained hundreds of people for free all the time and, and got them involved. Yeah. And uh, so, so there was an infrastructure available. Yeah, but you got to do you got to do one. You, you got to do one to get the other. Like it's a chicken and egg yeah. scenario. Is all I'm saying. If you if you focus yeah. only on the on the dealers and the rental companies, 
you know, if they don't have any users, they might buy one console because Bob's a great guy, but they're not going to buy 90 of them. Well, the 90 was, uh, it took two years to fill that order, by the way. Wow. Because there were 40 of the big ones, and then they were just developing the, the light at that time. It didn't have it yet, but 50 of them were the light, which didn't even exist when the order came in. Yeah. So, you know, at the end of the day, it gave me a place to steer people. And believe me, Christy did very well for having it. And, uh, you know, it was, it, it turned out well, but, you know, I couldn't be timid. I really needed to get out there and make this happen. If I, if I didn't do that, I, could, I couldn't have been cautious. I couldn't have made half steps, either you're in or you're not. I mean, yeah. you, can't be, you, you can't be partially pregnant. Yeah. So at some point, AC became ACT. Why is that? And how'd that come about? And Well, when David and I partnered to form AC, David was going to be, teach me the business and he was going to be with me and spend a, a, a major portion of his time in, in California. We got the office with the floor-to-ceiling windows looking at the Santa Monica Mountains. Yeah, you know, and uh, and the desks facing each other from opposite sides of the room. Right, yeah. You know, it was set for us to have a collaborative relationship. He came out twice in all of those years and realized that he, he really doesn't like to travel. And... So I was kind of on my own to put it together. I mean, he was very helpful. David was a wonderful partner. Yeah. Uh, I, I still adore him to this day. We, we communicate fairly regularly. But I was doing all the work. I was picking the products at the end. I was putting the pricing together. I was figuring out who to sell it to at what price. You know, all the stuff that we had to do to exist I was doing. Right. So our financial chief financial officer at that time was a guy, Murray, Murray Gellitley. And uh, Murray was David's uh, financial director in the UK and my CFO in the US. So I kept saying, Murray, you know, I appreciate that David doesn't want to travel, but it looks like I'm doing all the work in building the products why don't you let me buy David out? And he says, now David will never sell. I go, why? He says, well, you know, it's his company. It's his, his trademark and name and blah, blah, blah. blah. And he's very protective. Okay. So we kept moving along. And then when the stock market started crashing and David became less secure, I think, in the world financial market was going to take a dump. Yeah. I get a call from Murray one day. I'm at the, at brunch at the Agora Deli with my family says, uh, you still want to buy the company? At that time I owned a third of it. David owned a third and David's partner owned a third Richard Floyd. So I said, 
Yeah, I'd love to. He goes, well, why don't you get together with your team and let's move this forward. David's ready to sell. So I didn't buy Richard out, of course. I just bought David out. Um, and we put together a deal. It took a year to, to put it all together. And, and he was very generous with his um, letting, letting me, for a very minimal fee, use the logo and use the name. And so we made AC Lighting Inc. stayed AC Lighting Inc. And I became like about a 60% owner. Hmm. And, and, uh, but it got too confusing. There were things that he sold in different parts of the world and I sold in other parts of the world. We had the same name and the same logo. So it just got to be confusing. So I changed the name to act lighting. Uh, not because of anything David did. It just was, uh, it became too confusing for the market. There were two AC lightings. Yeah. So I, and I figured out the name act because act is a word used in our industry. It's also, I figured out the acronym and it was, uh, it was for architectural concert and theatrical lighting. Uh-huh. Uh, and actlighting.com was available as a URL. Yeah. So it became, it became act, and I then I did a rebranding. And I don't know if you remember the ads I used to run in, in Lighting Dimensions. I do, yeah. Rem- remembering, I, and I, I think I was really good at, at ads, by the way. Yeah, I, I I did one where I did the drawing of the the skeleton of the chimpanzee going into an ape, going to that, going to that, and, and eventually becoming you know a human walking erect. And I did that in. Oh, I remember that one. Yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, on the back on the back cover. Yeah. And the only word in the only word in the uh, in the ad was evolution. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's cool. So now, now you basically controlled the brand. You had your new brand. You had uh, obviously MA selling gangbusters. So how long did it take for MA to replace? from a revenue standpoint? I'd say two, two and a half years. And then it surpassed it. The industry also grew yeah. in all fairness. Yeah. It, it, plus automated lighting was going into malls. Yeah. 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 No, the, the whole industry expanded in such a big way and, and you became, you know, the new console du jour. I mean, Hog is still out there. Hog still seems to do well. They kind of screwed up with the third iteration of it, but uh, Hog Four is is still strong. Apparently, uh, we sell them pretty quickly when we get used ones available at a completely different price point, of course. So um, it's uh, it, you know, it's always interesting for me because I'm a brand and marketing, and uh, you know, I love that kind of part of the business. You know, I love trying to figure out strategy and how all things are working and going together and uh, what sells, what doesn't, and why. And it's not always because of the feature set. Sometimes it's because of, you know, whatever the the attitude, the way it makes people feel, you know. Um, But yeah, no, I mean, I always always, uh, jokingly call you the console whisperer. 
you know, because because you you hit the two biggest (laughs) grand slams in in the console industry. So, uh, yeah. There was, look, there was hard work, there was luck, there was timing, but, you know. Yeah. I wouldn't put it all on me. I I would say also we we put together a really exquisitely good team. Of course. No, no, I'm I'm not giving you all the credit, but certainly you were you were driving the boat when the when the boat you know found the gold. So uh, that's that says a lot about your vision, your you know work ethic, and all of that stuff. So then, speaking of which, you know, you stumble upon Clay Packy, and I remember, and you probably forget this, but I remember not that long before you picked up Clay Packy, you told me you would never take on an automated lighting line because you had to stay. Uh, neutral because of the console business. That's correct. And, I, I did say that, and I, and I meant it. But my my thinking changed eventually, and, and you know, a lot of did it have anything console, to do with the price of college or anything that you decided you needed to make more money? No, no. What it had to do with was building the company into a company that could accommodate. You know, you know, I always looked at, at our company like that circus act where the guy's got a pole and a plate and he spins the plate. Yeah. And, and then he then he moves on to the next pole and the next plate and spins it and then goes back to the first one and spins it and back until he gets like six or seven plates spinning. And then I, they all I, crash I, I and he dies in a fiery well, mess. Yeah, I, I wasn't... I needed to have a real structure and really grow the company to be able to do that. Yeah. When I commit to a manufacturer, there's a lot that goes into that commit. I would rather do one thing well than two things poorly. Yeah, I mean, there's so many companies that don't uh, think like that and try to do everything, and you end up doing everything poorly. So, well, so yeah. we built the team out to be able to have people that paid full attention to the various products we distributed. But did let me ask you another question about why you came to this change of heart. Um, did it have anything to do with the fact that now moving light manufacturers, let's call it high end, were in the console business? And so now the console company had to be in the moving light business. That had something to do with it. I would think so. But it was more important that I do it right. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, Clay Packy had come to me several for several years before before PRG was the distributor. Right. They wanted me to do it, and I always said I don't I don't think I'm able to do a good job here. Uh, and that kept them coming back every year. And finally, they came back, and I said, you know what, I'm ready to do it now. Yeah. Well, and then again, of course, in typical Bob fashion, <laughs> you know, you get involved right as the Sharpies coming out, right? Boy, I couldn't get those things fast enough. Yeah. You take on Clay Packy and then the and then the Sharpie comes out and obviously, you know, was probably the biggest success possibly ever in the automated lighting business from a standpoint of quantity. You know, so yeah, I many think of those. Was within the first year and a half, we sold over four thousand. That's just an insane number. That's an insane number. And I mean, 
granted it it was a great light it was a great effect that the whole world wanted just then it did one thing really really well you know that super freaking intense bright tiny beam through the air and everyone well, I'll wanted tell you that. a couple of sharpie stories that, sure that really so world wrestling they used to get these uh, Zen- these big Zenitech uh, Xenon uh, spotlights, like over the vomitories at, at a show. Yeah, that would wash the audience. They were able to replace those, and that, and that is major power distribution and all of that. They were able to replace those with four sharpies and a fifteen amp oh, you know outlet. And what were those like? Four Ks or six K or something? Xenon? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They were, they were big. Six to eight days. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, and the Sharpie was like uh, two less than two, 189 watts. Yeah, that's insane. That's insane. But that was the last light that Packy designed before he passed away. The vision of what it should be and the parameters of the light itself. No, uh, the concept was all packy. Packy and, uh, and, uh, like Bruno Didoro at Comar, same kind of mad geniuses. You know, they had this shop where they'd throw together lenses and a lamp and just keep bouncing things around and figuring out different combinations until something wow happened. And, uh, you know, the difference so, being Didoro was always more the, the, scientist and less the business guy i guess so he didn't really care how many he was going to sell the funny thing at the olympics in london that patrick woodruff lit Mm -hmm. they they use sharpies to fill in with lights on the other side of the stadium when they needed that was their go-to light their utility light yeah would shine across the other side of the stadium. Yeah. It would also, when they had the queen parachuting or diving out of the helicopter, that was the light. That, it's, mean, it's so incredible. 189, 189 watts. watts. Yeah, that is just so incredible what they did with that thing. And by the way, they're still super popular on the used market. Like I sell a ton of them still today. And they're still, you know, they're cheap now. I mean, they're 600 bucks or something, but... Uh, you know, they're still selling like a Mac 2000 today on the used market is like a hundred bucks, you know, a, a Sharpie six or 700. So, um, they're still pretty popular. They still sell. It's just the whole world is going to led now. So less and less people want a lamp based fixture, but, um, well, but that's yeah. the main difference now, the short arcs and yeah. you know, going to led and, and I was so prescient when I saw the first led lights. The Barbizon and the color kinetics that Barbizon had exclusive. Yeah. I said, this will never go anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So I know, I happen to know from the inside that within a very short time with Clay Packy, and again, let's attribute some of the success to the, uh, to the fact that the Sharpie came out, but um, there's no replacement for good distribution. And to be perfectly honest, in the United States, there's only a couple of good distributors. There's not a lot of them. It's not like easy to just go, oh, well, we're going to go to another guy, you know, look at, you know, Clay Packy. I mean, Clay Packy went on their own and, and I don't think they've ever done the same kind of numbers as they were doing with ACT. But, um, you know, I, like I think that, uh, uh, I forget where I was going with this thought, but I, oh, 
I know that you were you were by far the biggest. You were by far the biggest clay packy distributor in the world, and and I'm sure rode a wave to, you know, pretty. I know what the numbers were. They were big numbers, and I know as Martin when I was there, we never did those kind of numbers. Uh, so you know, again, the market grew. It was bigger now, and uh, but yeah. By the time I sold the company, I think Clay Packy and MA and all the other things we put together, MDG. Yeah. We were grossing $52 million a year. Yeah, uh, that's incredible. And much bigger now. They just keep growing. Yeah, well, act. Yeah, well, now, now they, they, they buy companies. So you taught me a lesson one time, and you probably won't remember ever teaching me this, but we were on a call and I don't remember if I was still with Martin. I was probably on my own doing this Coomar thing, uh, with track and part two. And, um, and you said that you were spending a lot of your time as, as you know, the CEO or founder of the company by then monitoring world currencies and making plays on world currencies. And I said, what? And you said, well, Marcel, what are you buying Comar lights with? And I said, Lira. And he said, where do you get your lira? And I said, I don't know. We buy them from some local currency trader. And he said, aha, you know, I could probably buy Coomar lights for, you know, seven to 10% less than what you're paying today. And I'm like, no, you can't, you know, we have a great relationship with Coomar. And you said, no, but I would be buying the lira at the right time and selling the lira at the right time and trading properly. And so you you sat me down for like thirty minutes and explained this whole thing to me, and uh, you know I was I was very grateful, and I kind of took that to our CFO at the time and said, "Hey, we need to be buying lira at the right time, and you need to go to these people." And so uh, yeah, it was a good lesson. Yeah, I had a great trader at the bank, and I knew in advance what the trends were, and, and I was buying you know I was buying things. All, all over Europe. Before the euro, you know, I was buying in several different currencies. I was yeah. buying in pounds, yeah. lira, Deutschmark. And, and because I was buying so many a month, I really had a big part of what I did personally was, was looking at the currency market and making the right buys. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's funny. Speaking of Lyra, uh, I, it just, a memory just crossed my head of back in the old Comar days for me, which was probably, I don't know, 1998, 99, um, sitting at a table with, with Bruno Dodoro. And I don't know how well you Hello. know. Hello. Oh, I'm here. Can you hear me now? I can still hear you. I can hear you great now, actually. Even better. Yeah. So, uh, you okay. know, I'm sitting with Bruno Didoro at a, at a table and we're working on an order. And I realized at this point that because Bruno, I don't know how well you know him, but he, he speaks or he understands perfect English, but he pretends he doesn't and he won't speak in English. And so I made it a mission of mine to very quickly learn numbers in Italian and so I could sit there and, and speak Italian when we were talking about, you know, 20 million lira or uh, 105 million lira or whatever these numbers were. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, it forced me to learn. And I still know today, like I can still, I, I'll, although the numbers are smaller because you're talking about Euro now. And, uh, 
you know, but yeah. Yeah, it was fun doing business in Italy. But yeah, that was a great lesson. And I, I, you know, I still use it today. Like I'm still paying attention to currencies because, uh, you know, my company, GearSource, very, very global company, and we're constantly trading uh, currencies, buying in one, selling in another one, et cetera. So you, you eventually sold the company. And so when was that and why? Was it just time or? There were a few reasons. Um, I timed it because I wanted to be totally out of it by the time I was seven. Yeah. I'll be 75 later this year. Oh, geez. I was going to say, so when are you turning 70? Yeah. Uh, I'm an old geezer. Yeah. Anyway, the point was, uh, 2014, I ran into a point where I, I had some minor shareholders Basically, I let buy parts of the company, uh, the, my, my accounting team, my legal team, and they owned, you know, I owned 60% of the company and, and the rest of them together owned 40%. Right. Owned 40%. Mm-hmm. And they were, so no one owned more than 10%. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as I was getting older, they were getting older and, so they um, they wanted they wanted to to sell, and I I would have bought their shares, but I started thinking about that in terms of when do I want to retire? Yeah, you know what what's my plan? They say every good company starts with an exit strategy. Mm-hmm. So I formulated an exit strategy, and we wanted to put I, there, there was. We, our sales were, were good enough and our balance sheet was strong enough that I knew I could get a good price. Mm-hmm. So I put together a team. Uh, ben, who, who worked for me at the time, um, wanted to run, it, run the company. Mm-hmm. He didn't have the money to buy it because you know I, I was asking a pretty big price. Yeah. Um, and so he went and found a private equity group in, in New York and together we negotiated and, and they bought the company. Yeah. That's amazing. And then, and Ben and, became the and CEO. And it was clean. Yeah. Ben became, actually I made him CEO before that. Oh really? Yeah. Listen, with people, different things motivate different people. And at some point, I knew what motivated Ben, and I you know, wanted to keep him motivated. He was he was valuable to me. Yeah. And I knew the titles were important. Yeah. They were less important to me. I spent most of my time at at ACT without a title on my business card. Mm-hmm. People didn't know. Yeah. Some people knew. Yeah, I mean, I'm similar. I think when I was younger, probably titles, like I remember my first v- VP title and I was like, wow, I'm a vice president, you know, of a company with 20 people in it. It really didn't matter, but to me it did. Uh, but today I couldn't care less. Call me the janitor because that's yeah. what I am most days, right? I clean up. Uh, but Ben, well, Ben's it, a really it, good dude. I can see why you went that direction. I have a great relationship with Ben. We get along uh, royally. I we talk spent a lot of time... Times trying to get him to come aboard. Yeah. Back when he was at Sharp Weisberg. And yeah. So, 
You know, yeah. look, ben, ben and I, to, to this day, we probably talk every day. Yeah, we're close. We're close to talking every day, but not quite every day, I guess, him and I. But, well, he uh, still asked me, and, and it was difficult at first because it's very difficult to, to um, put two alphas in the same corral, you know? Yeah. Yeah, but you're in a different position when, uh, you know, when you're in the process of selling your company or when you have sold your company. I mean, some people, I think that becomes some version of hell for them because they don't want to let go. But, uh, you know, I think other people, as long as your pockets are full enough of cash and your life is happy and, you know, everybody's happy. Hey. and Well, at that time, as long as my employees were taken care of. Yeah. Yeah. You, uh, and, and, and you, you continue to yeah. work though, which is interesting. Like I just saw you at LDI at the act booth. And, uh, so, you know, tell me about that. Are you just bored and you'd love to do, you'd love to stay connected still? Well, you know, that's my favorite hobby. First of all, staying connected is important to me. I, I think once you, once you stop being connected to the people that mean something to you. Yeah. Your, your life becomes less wholesome, becomes, yeah. comes you know, less fulfilling. Yeah. And, and I love this industry and I love the people in it for yeah. the most part. <laughs> well, by the way, you know, I, I read a book about Alzheimer's cause my, my mother is in a home for dementia and I read a book about it. Uh, Sanjay Gupta book. I forget what it's called. Brain something or other. <laughs> which, you know, the fact that I can't remember what an Alzheimer's book is called is yeah, probably right. a bad sign in itself. But, um, but one of the, one of the biggest things they talk about is, is social connections. You know, uh, sometimes dementia really grabs hold when people stop being socially connected or stop working, especially like, especially guys like you and I who are, uh, you know, a types and, and love to go to trade shows, love to talk to people and tell stories and get involved and stuff. When you suddenly take that away from us, you know, your brain stops sort of functioning at that same. I also have a a great love for bringing things into the market that become, like I introduced color changers. Yeah. Yeah. Think about that. That's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, computerized lighting control system. Yeah. For moving lights. Yeah. I mean, there, there, there are things that I introduced in the market that I could still walk to almost any production company or rental shop, and put my hands on a bunch well, of Well, you, you headlined this whole or headed up or brought in the Zach track too, didn't you? Into, uh, yeah, well, I found them, in, I found them in Europe. Yeah. And I, and I was intrigued. Gil Densham, you know, Gil, he did wizard wig and does black tracks. Yeah. So Gil had been after me to, to do something with him a year, but, but I, I really didn't want to, I, I, I really don't like him that much and don't trust him. I, I know he'll probably hear this, you know, but, but it was a guy that didn't want to take no for an answer. I mean, I'll, I'll probably still get a call from him, huh. but, uh, but I, I studied what black tracks did and what it took to do it. And when I saw this product and the difference, it freaked me out. This is an amazing product. And so I brought it to the United States. As a matter of fact, I had um, a non-compete with, with Act. Mm-hmm. 
So I remember three years ago or whenever I, with, with the pandemic, I lose track of yeah, yeah. time, but this was just before that one. Yeah. Well, but so I, um, I was in New York and I went to dinner with Ben and I said, listen, I told him about Zach track. I tried to tell Zach track to, to contact act, but Ben at that time, because you know, he has to answer to a board of directors and yeah. you know, all the things that I didn't have to do. Listen, life was a lot easier for me. I, yeah, no I did kidding. what I wanted to do. Right. Right. Um, he wasn't ready to bring a product on a highly technical product that was going to require support and probably not generate immediate big income. One of the things I did at AC and ACT was develop products, brought them in when no one was asking for them and, and develop them. And I said, listen, I can appreciate your position. I want to bring them in to LDI. I was prepared to take my own booth up like a little 10 by 10 or something. And I said, but I need your written permission due to our non-compete clause to do that. I think this is the next big thing. And he said to me, do you really think this is the next big thing? I said, I really do. I think, I think this is going to be just a really important product. And, and he says, well, if you really feel that way, let's do it together. So he allowed me to bring it in. We put it on the ax stand. This was uh, two LDIs ago. There was one skipped or whatever. We brought it and we got a lot of attention. Yeah. Um, I also, you know, I do this as a hobby. I don't ask for pay from Zach track. I, wow. I, I, I have put Zach track into distribution in six countries so far. Jesus. Well, you because know what? I love doing it. Yeah. I love doing it. Yeah. It keeps me in touch with the people I know around the world, with the community. I love the products. Um, I just feel good about it. So let me ask you this. I got a big question for you. I can't wait. Are you really smart or really lucky? Yes. <laughs> I love that answer. That's a good one. That's a good one. I don't think I'm, I, I don't think I'm really smart, but I'm not dumb. Yeah. And I do think I'm really lucky. And I do think I've had good timing. I mean... But massively hard work, too. You know, I mean, anyone who knows yeah. you well knows how hard, like I said, trade shows, you know, I don't even bother trying to talk to you on the show floor. Although, you know, you're, you're that guy that even if you're four deep at a console or over a product or something with a stack of people all around you, you'd, you'd go, hey, Marcel, and you'd call me into the booth and say, come here, I want to talk to you. And then I'd have to wait for 10 minutes until you were done with this group of people, right? Well, you saw it last time, I, yeah. you know, and yeah. I was... Very happy to see you. Yeah, no, likewise. Likewise, yeah, I saw you at LDI just a couple months ago in Vegas. It was nice to see you. It felt like LDI again. Bob's here, you know? I know. God, yeah. it was amazing. Yeah, uh, wasn't it cool? It was, And it was such a great show. You guys, I mean, act, I should say, not you guys, but they, including you, 
uh, had an amazing show. I loved the Zach track at the booth, how it showed on that screen where all the salespeople were. I wish wish a thousand times I had that in the past because it was like, you know, people were constantly coming up to me saying, where's this person? Where's this person? Where's this person? And uh, so I thought that was a really cool and brilliant thing. So, yeah, it was just fun to be back there. So, you know, yeah. yeah, Zach track is just a a, a point of of pride. I I get such pleasure out of bringing something good to people. Yeah. Well, I know some really, really picky LDs who are using Zach track and say that it's the only thing they'll use as far as automated, automating follow spots, you know. Um, but it's not even automating follow spots. But let's put it this way: it's a very, it's a lighting tool that allows you to do things you couldn't do any other way. Yeah, no, it's it's an amazing product. So you know, the very last thing I want to talk to you about, just briefly, is is you and I both lost a really good friend recently, and I know we've talked a whole bunch about it. But do you remember when you very first met uh, young Timmy Brennan? Yeah. When I, when I was lighting Neil Sadaka in Las Vegas, before we would load in at the Riviera, I would always go to cinema services and rent a lighting package to supplement what they had in the theater. Mm-hmm. And one of those trips, I met Tim when he was, he was a teenager. And I was dealing with Jimmy first, and year after I was dealing with Barbara because Jimmy was less involved and Barbara was more involved. And I met Tim as a kid. Mm -hmm. And um, I was really drawn to Tim. I mean, you know, back in in the days when we would do sales in Vegas together when Tim was an adult. I mean, I remember getting in the car and he put in a cassette of, like, Irish war chants. (laughs) You know, on the way to the sale, right? Yeah, yeah tribal war chants from from the Irish. Yeah. Yeah, I mean he Tim was an incredible guy. He was a trip. So, you know, it's it's uh I did a little um thing for Tim on my Zoom call that I had a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago. And I can't remember exactly who it was. It might have been Eric Kennedy who came on, but we got into talking about Tim's driving. And I'm sure you've ridden in his truck with him and it's a scary experience. Uh, but he said, um, he remembered one time there was a guy like walking across the street or something and Tim stopped his truck and got out of the truck and goes, uh, get a car, you fucking loser (laughs) or something, right? He's berating the guy because he's walking and, uh, you know, that's just so Tim, you know, it's the guy, guy was an amazing guy. I mean, he's, he's a guy that, uh, I just... I don't know. I've never met anybody like him, and I don't expect to meet another guy like Tim. You know? Yeah, he was a force of nature. There's no no way around it. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I assume you were uh, on the Zoom version of the funeral, and uh, his his best buddy there in Vegas described him as fierce, and it was such a perfect yeah. word. You know, he he was a fierce competitor, a fierce dad, a fierce driver for sure. Uh, you know, he just did everything with full passion. You know, it was a hundred miles an hour, no matter what he was doing, whether it was, you know, getting drunk or it was uh, selling a deal. You never wanted to have to compete against him. That's for sure. But, but, but he was always so sweet to me. Yeah, me too. What can I do? 
what can I do for you? He, he yeah. would always, you know. Well, you know, he, he told me all the time that, you know, he loved me because I was the underdog. And this was when I was with Martin. You know, I was, he and I were selling Martin stuff in Vegas when it was very uncool to be selling Martin stuff in Vegas. Yeah. And I, I, you know, would never question the fact that I was only doing that because of Tim. There's no way I would have done it on my own. It never would have happened. Yeah. It just, and I was a pretty good sales guy, but without Tim, I had no no reason, no right to be in Vegas. And he, uh, Tim, Tim he knew everybody. What, yeah. What, 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 what always cracked me up was like, I would meet guys like big Al. Who's big Al. Yeah. I mean, this, this goes back to like gangster roots in yeah. Vegas. Yeah. Who gets, big Al was the guy. If you open a casino in a hotel, you had to buy your carpet from big. I Al. remember it's big Al. I was going to say, is he the carpet guy? Yeah. Yeah. Like he knew everything. Like that, you know? He knew everything yep. that Big Al. He knew when when people were going to do renovations, who was buying what, what was buying this. He knew everything that guy and Tim always sat and drank beer with him. Yep. Yeah, no, that's no, I I missed him. I I uh we've lost a lot of people over the past couple of years unfortunately, some due to COVID, some due to just not being super healthy or whatever. Um, well, guess what? We're not getting younger. No, that too. That's that's another problem. But you know, Tim, Tim, uh, even my girlfriend said to me, you know, this this guy, she'd never met him, but she said this guy really impacted you more than uh, more than all the other people you've lost over the past yeah. couple of years. And I said, yeah, you're right. This one, this one, I feel so. Not that you don't feel them all, but yeah. Anyways, yeah, no, I, I know he, he makes a bigger a bigger impact. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Bob, I've taken enough of your time. It's freaking two hours and 10 minutes in here. And, uh, it's, well, I hope you got out of it what you wanted. Hell yeah. Well, I wanted some more dirty, nasty stories, but, uh, we haven't got all that all day. So we're going to have to do a story hour another time Yeah, and tell some funny ones. I'll, I'll tell you a, a funny story and we'll close it that way. Please. When, back in, in my days with REO Speedway, our opening act for one part of the tour was Survivor. Do you remember them? Of course. The Eye of the Tiger? Yep. So they were leaving us mid-tour to go off and headline their own tour. And we were playing Market Street Arena, which doesn't exist anymore, in, in Indianapolis. And... Robin Tate, who was the who who was the promoter's uh, rep, I had an, an advance arranged for him to buy three thousand balloons, a bunch of lawn bags, and tanks of helium, and a couple of bottles of Dom Perignon and some ice picks. So, and a crew. He had to hire a crew. So when they went on stage, I had the bus driver drive their bus up to the up to the back entrance of Market Square, and we had people in, in, in the back part of the, of the Coliseum blowing up balloons, filling them with helium all day. They had a Silver Eagle bus, so we we took the chilled Dome Perignon, put them in the back lounge, and then filled the bus with helium balloons in the bunks, in the heads, floor <laughs> to ceiling, front to back. Why? It just seemed like a good idea at the time. Yeah. 
And, and when they got off stage, I handed each of the band members an ice pick and said, let's go drink some champagne. That's pretty cool. So they had a bus, bus their way through the bus. That's pretty damn Blowing cool. all the balloons, talking funny because of the helium. That's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah, that's great. That's a killer story. Well, thank you, Bob. I appreciate your time. I love talking to you. Uh, you know, great seeing you at LDI. I can't wait to see you again. Where are you going next? Where can I, where can I find you? Where in the hell is Bob going to be? Oh, you know, I've been canceling more trips than I've been taking lately. Yeah. Well, we all have, right? Well, I was supposed to be in Mexico today. A friend of mine has a, his 50th birthday party. Yeah. It is really exclusive enclave that he lives in. But I don't want to have to quarantine in Mexico. If I, if I can. Wait, does Mexico have a quarantine right now? No, but I have to test before coming back to the U.S. Yeah, but that's nothing. Well, unless you have it. Oh, I see what you're saying. Oh, you can't if, get if on you the get flight. it down there. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Well, then so just, the next trip I'm trying to make is in March going, uh, well, I'm going to New York to visit my son and his wife. Right. Since we missed it in Christmas time. Yeah. So that's the next time. If you want to be in New York, we'll have a party. Well, let's do that. Let's try and make okay, a, buddy. I'm going to be at your birthday party, by the way. In, in Singapore. That's correct. I'll be there. Okay, buddy. All right, man. Thank you, Bob. Love you. You too, bud. Bye-bye. Yeah. You're always staying, you're my 